When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Some words have been robbed of all meaning. They've been used, abused, mangled, contorted, weaponized, and stripped of context. If we can't agree on what words mean, then we can't agree on much. This is Origin Story. In each episode, we take a key term from the political or cultural discourse and tell the story of where it came from, what happened to it, and what it means today. By exploring the history of the ideas, we'll try to get a clearer understanding of where we are now. My name's Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And my name's Ian Dunt. I'm a columnist with the Iron Newspaper, and I'm the author of How to Be a Liberal. So, Ian, this week we are ostensibly talking about satire, but I think we're also talking about the relationship between comedy and politics in general. I think maybe it's a little bit more like, you know, obviously with the superhero episode, we're talking about sort of politics and and comic books. It's we're not cheap. This should be a new tradition for us. Like every season we have one cheap one episode. Cheat. Yeah, because yeah. people don't, I mean, I guess, I mean, I mean, the, the, the definition of satire is really contested, but not like on Twitter. People aren't kind of having <laughs> massive rows about, you're not a real satirist. <laughs> but we do have a lot of arguments about the role of, of politics and comedy mm-hmm. and, you know, comedians who become political YouTubers and people who get into trouble over jokes and, you know, and then get cancelled and so on and so forth. So we're going to talk about some of that, but we're going to hinge it around satire, which turns out to be right like a really... I didn't expect this. No. I mean, I'm a little tired of starting the research, these things, and looking at all these books. And all the books start with just like, really, nobody knows what this is. And Mm. I'm like, really? This word I've been using my whole life, nobody really knows what it is. Like, was that that your experience as well? 100%. I was baffled by how hard it was. And in my own head as well, like, because once they start raising the problems with the word, you're just like, oh, fuck, I can't. It's really very hard for me to to define it. And and I kept on yeah. trying to put up these walls. Like at one point, I quite strongly felt like I was like, no, you know what? I don't care what they write. I don't care what they say. It's got to be funny. You know, one of the first things I read was like, it doesn't even have to be funny. I was like, no, come on. No way. It's got to be funny. Yeah. And then I thought about Black Mirror, the Charlie Brooker thing. And I, was, and I just thought, oh, yeah, no, that's definitely satire. And Ooh. that is not funny. That's harrowing, horrific. Or, or, or 1984, like a lot of utopias and dystopias mm-hmm. are essentially satires and described as such by their writers. And some of them are funny, like Erewhon by Samuel Butler mm-hmm. has, has a lot of good gags because it's in that kind of Swiftian Gulliver's Travels tradition. Right. But some, of course, are like are really dark. So anyway, we're going to talk about some of the criteria that basically there's, there's a couple of major problems. One is, and this is where we get to do a little bit of lit crit. <laughs> as an English graduate, I'm glad I've never done a bit of lit crit. Oh, Christ. That basically tragedy and comedy were codified. There were rules to tragedy and comedy. And mm-hmm. anyone who studied English, even I think, you know, a kind of GCSE level will know that there are certain things which define tragedy and comedy. Satire is not. And confusingly, if you look in Jacobean drama, mm. satire is more common in tragedy than it is in comedy. Hmm. That sort of that sort of like darkness and aggression yeah. and sort of savage irony. And also it covers so many people. I'm just going to give you some of the people that, you know, come out when you're talking about satire. 
So Jonathan Swift, Amanda Iannucci, H.L. Mencken, Aristophanes, Mad Magazine, Randy Newman, Mark Twain, Kurt Vonnegut, Voltaire, Dr. Strangelove, Animal Farm, Sasha Baron Cohen, The Life of Brian, Hogarth, Jane Austen, Charlie Brooker, Juvenile, Chaucer, Thomas Pynchon, Charles Dickens, Charlie Chaplin, Evelyn War, Lewis Carroll, Catch-22 and The Onion. Like... It's also a pretty good list. Of That's a good. I mean, you would have a right there. you would have a yeah. good time <laughs> with the with that lot, but all, all very different. So we will start with uh, the OED, and we do love the OED, even though we basically like set it up as like this Aunt Sally at the beginning <laughs> to go. Well, these people whose job, full time job, is literally to define words. Mm. Um, they're not very good at it. But the point is, I think, is of course, they're, what they're trying to do is reach a consensus. That it, it's given me doing this podcast has given me a huge respect for people who put together dictionaries, because a lot of the time what they're trying to do is find a consensus term for words on which there is no consensus in the academic literature. I am, I am more and more, yeah, yeah experiencing a sense of growing res- respect yeah, for them. For, the, yeah. for like the really big topic, the ones that basically we're doing episodes about, it's really hard. So there's a poem, or in later use, a novel, film, or other work of art, which uses humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize prevailing immorality or foolishness, especially as a form of social or political commentary, frequently with, on, of, against. Originally distinguished from lampoon in being directed, a word we do not use enough, in being directed at a fault rather than at a person who has that fault, though there is now considerable overlap between the two terms. See Horatian, Juvenalian, Manipian, and prose satire. And we're going to break down what these different satire mean. First citation in English, 1509, Alexander Barclay and Sebastian Brandt's Ship of Fools. Hmm. Therefore, in this satire, such will I reprieve, reprove? It's written in the, because the, they, the, they, they write it in the English of the time. Right, right. Okay, so here's one idea to start us off. Do you think it is a spirit rather than a genre? Like you almost feel, you recognize it when you see it, when even if you can't define it. Isn't it more of a mode? Like, because it's it's very hard with the genre thing because you've got all these bits. So, you know, you can, like you, you mentioned Dickens there and you can pick out bits of Dickens. Mm. Dickens is not writing a satirical book. You know, that is not what he's right, done yeah, yeah. there. And, and then the whole content doesn't turn out that way. I get, you know, and then differently, if you were to talk about, I don't know, the thick of it or something, you go, okay, fine, it's satire, like the whole thing, you know, from start to finish. But but so many of the chief examples are when someone slips into it for a bit. Even Ayn Rand, there is sort of Dickensian satire. Oh, I guess so. Yeah. Where you put an argument that you hate in the voice of this kind that's of right, that's character. Right. Yeah, yeah. So you're right. So something can be a satire, but then, of course, you can just slip into, mm-hmm. in and out of satire. In Satire, Spirit and Art by George A. Test, Mm. he says, there is no accepted definition of what satire is, only dictionary descriptions. But uh, he doesn't stop there. (laughs) Yes, no, they never do. No, he goes on. And he sets four criteria, aggression, Mm -hmm. laughter, play, and judgment. And he says the satirist melds the roles of judge, castigator, jester, and trickster. That's that's pretty good. Mm. I quite like that. I mean, I suppose I came up with a few... Oh, yeah. Um, Your own ones. Well, just some things that seem to be like common features, but without being kind of red lines. And maybe that's a good way to think about it. Okay. So some kind of critique exposing problems and follies in society. Laughter, I'm saying, some comic sensibility. Exaggeration. Plays with language and form. Like the form of it is really, really important, whether it's like the kind of mock epic poem or the mock documentary. Mm -hmm. 
And there's one that came up, which I thought was really interesting. I don't know whether it's universally applicable, but it, it, it works with a lot of the stuff. Appeals to common sense. Oh. And that can actually be quite politically neutral because you can be laughing at the right and their excesses, or you can be, uh, you know, quite reactionary and laughing at the, you know, the, the yeah, preposterous yeah. excesses of progressives, mm -hmm. you know, which, I, you know, Swift, it would be a good example there. And again, we talk a lot about what effect it's trying to have on the, on the reader. Is it trying to unsettle them or, or comfort them? But a lot of satire is saying, like, it's like winking to the reader and going, look at this idiot. Mm -hmm. Right. Like Jane Austen will be doing that with some sort of pompous cleric or something. Mm -hmm. She's just going, this guy is a fool. Mm. And it does seem to be that kind of like conspiratorial thing. I mean, there are certain kinds of satire which are designed to really sort of, you know, upset your own audience. But I think they're rarer. I think a lot of the time you're trying to you're you're forging a connection, an alliance between the writer and the reader against the subject of the satire. Yeah, yeah. Can I read some of my favorite, my, the ones I came across that I liked? Yeah. Definitions. Yeah. I did, there weren't many. I really like this from Jeffrey Grigson. This is from the preface to the Oxford book of satirical verse. Satire postulates an ideal condition of man or decency and then despairs of it and enjoys the despair masochistically. Oh, that's very good. <laughs> I really enjoyed that one. I actually yeah. thought that one worked. Obviously, I mean, the, one of the best sort of single descriptions is from Swift because it is itself uh, a satirical sort of statement. It's quite famous. It's satire is a sort of glass wherein beholders do generally discover everybody's face but their own. Yeah. And that's pretty, pretty good copy there <laughs> from, from Swift. But we should say what it's not, right? So it's not, it overlaps with irony, but it's not the same as irony. Mm -hmm. And one of the first really good definitions in sort of modern eras, Northrop Fry in Anatomy of Criticism. He goes, the chief distinction between irony and satire is that satire is militant irony. Its moral norms are relatively clear and it assumes standards against which the grotesque and absurd are measured. Mm. So he says, name calling, for example, is like satire without irony. And if it's too ambivalent or even tragic, it's irony without satire. And then it's not parody. So Dario Faux makes a distinction between satire and teasing. And teasing is satire without anger. There are another couple of, of, just, of just ideas that come out of the literature that I thought were interesting to set up. One is the idea that is actually great sociology. And critical John R. Clarke says it tells you more about its era than any other form of literature. It's to their pages we turn to recover any age's prevalent language of blather and cliche, babble and decay. Mm, lovely. And the other question that, that, that this guy Leonard Feinberg in The Satirist brings up is this something that I wasn't aware of because I don't think it's necessarily true anymore. There was a long-standing assumption for literally centuries that there was basically something wrong with satirists, that they were pathologized. They were these warped, misanthropic individuals raging mm. at the world. And that rather than it being like, uh, you know, this sort of social duty, it was like a an uncontrollable impulse of a sort of maladjusted outsider. And he actually includes this. I can't speak to the, you know, the, the soundness of the research here, but, you know, um, a psychiatrist did do some research interviewing satirists and comedians and normal people, mm -hmm. with apologies to satirists and comedians listening. <laughs> um, and he found that satirists relative to both the other groups were more likely to be suspicious, touchy, antisocial. Oh, interesting. And said that there was a truth to that. And he actually said that rather than it being seen as a moral impulse, it should be seen as an artistic impulse. 
And it's really funny because no, very few people want to own up to that. They want to go, I am calling out, you know, faults in society in a very clear-eyed fashion. But of course, a lot of the best satirists are these really difficult, awkward people. And it doesn't mean that you dismiss that and just go, well, they're just, you know, they're just sort of driven by their own grudges and hatreds. But it does kind of mean that it's not necessarily this kind of purely noble, I must critique society and that there's something, there's actually something very complicated going on in the psyches of some of the famous satirists. Why don't you hit us with 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 the history, like a, a little mini history of satire? Okay, so satire has been found in most cultures going back millennia, mm-hmm. and there is this 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 tradition of, of of sort of social ritual, of of laughter and mockery. There's in lots of religions. There's these tricks to gods, mm-hmm. like Loki, uh, Hermes, Coyote, and Nancy. A lot of ancient fables have elements of satire. The word is invented by a Quintilian. He invented the Latin word satura in the first century AD to describe the work of Gaius Lucilius, which I'm not familiar with, I have to say. No, you're not. I really um, feel that you've been scrimping on your research for this episode. I did not read any Gaius Lucilius. Um, now, a satura lanx was a dish filled with different fruits, and that came to mean a hash or medley. If we're talking like ancient versions of origin story, <laughs> for centuries it was misunderstood as deriving from the Greek word satyr, satyr. The, you know, the bawdy nature spirit. Oh, yeah. Um, because that seemed to make sense. Yeah, for good reason. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and of course, you, if someone just said, is it this kind of like horny prankster figure <laughs> or is it a bowl of fruit? <laughs> like it's a very understandable, but it, it was literally misunderstood for, for, for centuries. Now, Quintilian had this really narrow definition that it was about form rather than tone. And if we're talking about how strict it is, he said it had to be in hexameter. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and the first writer, he didn't. He was writing about um, sort of Roman contemporaries. Um, the first writer that was widely known in Europe, and we're really talking about the work that was circulating. So, of course, like scholars now will be able to go, here is Egyptian satire and here is Native American satire mm-hmm. and all that. But that wasn't available to someone like Quintilian. What was available was Aristophanes, mm in 5th century BC, Athens. And he, for example, satirized Socrates in the clouds, uh, the great tragedians Euripides and Aeschylus in the frogs. And the stuff that we still use now in Lysistra, there is a sex strike to end a war. Uh Uh-huh, that's where that comes from. And also in the birds, he creates the phrase cloud cuckoo land, which we still use. Uh, He has a great line on Cleon, who was a political leader of his time. Cleon did not like him. Uh, I can't imagine he did, given that Aristophanes described him in the following way. The greatest monster in the land with camel's rump and monstrous unwashed bulls. (laughs) Which is actually pretty good. I mean, monstrous unwashed bulls is is pretty good sort of swearing, really. He he was very, very mucky. Hmm. Well, this is something we'll see all the way through in the history of satire, right? Is yeah. is is the sort of the use of bodily functions and especially sort of, you know, penises and bums. But but more than anything, farting, really. Oh, right. As this way of like reducing the grandeur of someone and showing them, you know, their animal nature, their inability to keep the 
inside from coming out. You know what I mean? So it's it's most it's it's yeah. often very schoolboy because these are the chief sort of mechanisms that are used to reduce the powerful, like throughout history. So I want to talk about like the three, the sort of the three modes of satire that would have been familiar in Rome. You've got Horace, whose whose satire could be quite gentle and playful. And then he's followed by the much fiercer, more pessimistic Juvenal, mm. who just had a great quote. It says, it is difficult not to write satire. <laughs> yes, he's, all of his stuff is that. It's basically like, well, what am I supposed to do? These guys are complete bastards. I know. I've got no choice. Here. He says, satire has an interest in anything men do. <laughs> it's just, he just looked at the, he's, he's a good example of, I suppose, the pathologized satirist. Mm. Well, he just sounded like a, just a very dark, angry, yeah. angry man. I liked it, though. He's got a wonderful line. He said, though talent be wanting, yet indignation will drive me to verse. And indignation will drive right. me to verse is not a bad summary of, yeah. of the sort of satiric impulse. You know? So you've got these two kind of like, like uh, the Superman and Batman of... <laughs> Thank you for putting it in language yeah, I can understand. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's also like a third really important mode for Manipius in the third century BC. And weirdly, none of Manipius's satires actually survives. So it's all just kind of reports. But Manipian satire, uh, the difference there is it just satirizes attitudes rather than individuals. And so a good example of Manipian satire is Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. So it satirizes a lot of things, but it's not like having a go at, you know, Queen Victoria. So those would have been like the three, for a long time, like in scholarship, those were the three modes. Obviously, it's a little bit daft to just look at every kind of satire now and go, mm-hmm. well, which of these is, is that? <laughs> but this is the toolkit that, that, that people were working with. Now, you wanted to, before I kind of, you know, move on to, I suppose, maybe the, the, the first golden age of, of English satire. You want to talk a bit about just the role of laughter more broadly in in politics and society? Yeah, yeah. Because I think, because ultimately this is what so much of it comes down to when we start asking the kind of questions that you ask of satire, like, is it effective? You know, what, what, you know, is actually accomplishing anything? Where does the impulse for it come from? And it's, it's the history of laughter and especially the history of like what people thought laughter represented politically. Let me start this off in an odd way by talking about what we think probably laughter actually is. Um, As you can tell, I've just spent two weeks thinking about laughter and getting weirder and weirder about it. Because once you start really thinking about it and watching people laugh, you're like, it's a pretty mad behavior, actually, Mm. like Mm. shrieking, shaking. Mm. Anyway, so where you think it comes from, I mean, evolutionary, but this is from evolutionary biologists, Matthew uh, Gervais and David Sloan Wilson, sort of suggested that about two million to four million years ago, it was this sort of outgrowth of the breathy panting that's emitted by um, primates during play fighting. And that, you know, you had these moments where it it predates language, where they start doing that. And it sort of became this signal to others that actually danger at that point was low and your basic needs were met. So it was a pretty good time for, you know, to explore and to play and to socialize. So Gervais says it signals this is a non-serious novelty and recruits others to play and explore cognitively, emotionally and socially with the implications of this novelty. I know this sounds like a weird thing to bring up. But the thing of laughter is play, I think, becomes quite essential to when we start thinking about its capacity for political change and the viability of using it as a form of political communication. So there is this sort of sense throughout human history and throughout the history of ideas of laughter actually being this quite chaotic 
element, especially given that through so much of society, you have these very performative demonstrations of hierarchy and status, you know, sort of removing the hat, doing a bow. And yet laughter is seen as something that you can't control. It shakes the body. It seems that people can't make it stop once it starts. And so therefore, there's a sort of real danger of mockery and of piercing set social systems. In the classical world, I mean, you know, Plato considers it this sort of malicious blend of pleasure and pain in perceiving the ridiculous and the sort of evidence of this insidious antisocial element in humanity. Plato being Plato obviously wants to police it out of existence. And of course, there are times in history when laughter is considered socially dangerous and heretical. So just as satire in England is 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 enjoying quite a kind of nice patch in the 1590s, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1599 institutes what's known as the Bishop's Ban, where he ordered various books censored or burned, and he specified satires or epigrams, which understandably, given that you do need a modicum of free speech in order to be a successful satirist, this did uh, did uh, did put the satire boom on ice for a while. So in the modern period, you get this continuation with philosophers, certainly Hobbes and others, who have this sense of laughter, again, as something quite evil. It's essentially a form of superiority. Like, why do you laugh at Basil Forty? Not because he's funny and he's acting this way, because you feel superior to him. And you see that in the words. So check out the, check out the, the new words for laughing that are invented in this period. Smirking, 1500. Railing, 1507. Taunting, 1529. Jeering, 1553. Bantering, the Bantabus starts in 1677, ridiculing 1680, sneering 1680, and roasting, which I thought was much more modern than that, mm. roasting is from 1710. So constantly the perception of laughter is of something quite mean. You then develop a sort of around the 1700s, this idea of laughter as release. Now that has a kind of almost a medical origin to it. You know, the word humor comes from the bodily humors and the idea, you know, there'd be four humors, this is medieval medicine. And if you had too much of one of them, you would start to act in this sort of comedic way. And you start to see that applied to the body. So 1709, you get Shaftesbury's essay on the freedom of wit and humor, which sort of suggests that laughter is a release of excess animal spirits. That's continued, actually, until quite late in the day. Sigmund Freud, in jokes and their relation to the subconscious in 1905, says that the energy is caused by, of course, you know, wait for it, repressed sexual and hostile urges, which are released through the muscles by laughing. It goes without saying that none of that really works in terms of the individual. Where it does work and is increasingly sort of taken seriously by modern scholars of satire is on a societal level. And it's to look at, for instance, the trickster who appears as a sort of almost an archetype in almost every culture you look at, or to look at festivals of the world turned upside down. So for instance, you know, in ancient Greece, the Dionysia festival, in Rome, Saturnalia festival, where the master serves the slaves. In the Middle Ages, the sort of use of boy bishops or asses mass, where they sort of lead these donkeys up the altar. That in these moments, either through the festival itself that sort of subverts all the taboos of a society, or through the sort of trickster or jester figure, you get these, these, these sort of releases on the need to conform to society's rules and to its taboos and to its hierarchies. And that that is almost, 
there's a sort of sense that it's almost recognized by the ruling class at any given moment as the way of keeping the pressure down. So here's uh, the scholar Matthew Hogarth. The reason for the widespread popularity of stories of the trickster type in primitive literature seems to be that every society has its laws, taboos, and moral regulations which preserve or are felt to preserve the social structure, yet on occasions become intolerably restrictive. There is therefore a periodical, perhaps annual, breaking of taboos, which gives a cathartic release of social tension, and as a result, the taboos will be taken all the more seriously once they are reimposed and normal life is taken up again. This idea comes into the present day. So the fool, the figure of the fool that we know best from Shakespeare, sort of splinters later into there is still the traditional sort of fool in English folklore, Mm -hmm. but it splinters mainly into the clown and the stand-up comedian. Mm -hmm. And there are still these rituals of irreverence and sort of faux subversion that you get in, for example, the celebrity roast or Ricky Gervais teasing celebrities at the Golden Globes. Well, the classic example, right, is the presidential roast, which looks like this sort of challenge to power, but it is, of course, completely accepted by power and desired by power. And yet you could see, I think, in the case of Michelle Wolfe when when she did it, Mm -hmm, that that it went a little too far because she was actually turning on the journalists Mm -hmm. at the correspondence (laughs) dinner, which you are not meant to do, that she's sort of broken the code of the ritual. So I think we're going to come back later on to this idea of like the jester's license and perhaps the, the, you know, this enormous freedom that we give the comedian and how sometimes that can be uh, abused in bad faith. It's really interesting that you point out this period where they invented a lot of the mean words Mm -hmm. because this is the sort of the golden age of English satire. Right, yeah. Should we talk Uh, about that? Yeah, it begins around 1665 under Charles II because, again, a relatively kind of liberal Mm. period. I don't Mm. think satirists sort of thrived under Cromwell. So it's not as like writers like Dryden and actually the metaphysical poets, Andrew Marvel and John Donne, also did quite a lot of, of satire. Oh, interesting. I then, always thought of John Donne as quite serious. Yeah, no, I did. And I studied them and I totally forgotten that that was kind of like part of their, their mm. sort of arsenal. Um, and then you get Augustan satire, 1700s to 1740s, most famously Alexander Pope, Jonathan Swift, also John Gay. And in 1714, they formed the Scribblerus Club. Uh, where they created can you, say that? can you say that again Scriblerus Club say it one more time Scriblerus <laughs> Club and they created the character of Martinus Scriblerus to mock the fads of the day so he was just this kind of like this sort of florid pompous idiot mm-hmm. and he was kind of like the 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 sort of the the mascot of, of their club and then you get a little later here you get the drawings of William Hogarth and then you know a, a fair bit later James Gilray who between them are the forefathers of the political cartoon. Right. So this is an amazing kind of like efflorescence of satirical talent. And I think if you asked most people, perhaps, like what's the earliest satire that that they're aware of? You know, they might well say like Gulliver's Travels or A Modest Proposal yeah. by Swift. A Modest yeah. Proposal being the famous one where it's like done a completely poker-faced argument about like uh, why we should uh, why we should eat the poor. Should we, should, we, should we do a quick line from that one? Because it really yeah. is very, very well written and genuinely still funny. I shall now therefore humbly propose my own thoughts, which I hope will not be liable to the least objection. I have been assured by a very knowing American in my acquaintance in London that a young, healthy child, well-nursed, is at a year old a most delicious, nourishing and wholesome food, whether stewed, roasted, baked or boiled. And I make no doubt that it will serve equally well in a fricasse or a robuste. And some people, of course, did take it Seriously, you know, because one of the uh, definitions of satire that people come up with is like the target must be obvious. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I think the number of people that you see retweeting a story from The Onion shows that there's actually a whole kind of satire 
which is actually so clever. I wouldn't say subtle, but Modest Proposal is not subtle. No. It's crazy stuff. And yet some people generally thought that this was like, that even back then, people thought there was some guy and they go, yeah, there would be somebody that thinks that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? We can think of newspaper columnists today where they would write that and you would just go, yeah, they might mean that. <laughs> Okay, so I, I want to do one more bit before we get to sort of perhaps the bigger picture stuff and, 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 and the present day. I just want to talk about one more sort of really important historical episode, which is the satire boom of the late 50s, early 60s, which funnily enough is when you get a lot of the scholarship that we've quoted comes from this period. There was a real interest mm. in what satire was. And this coincides with, in America, stand-up comedy changes. Richard Zoglin who's written History of Comedy, describes the evolution of stand-up between the 40s and the 70s as a long march from joke-telling to truth-telling. Right. And that really happens with kind of Lenny Bruce, who's very well-known, Mort Saal, who no. preceded him, less well-known, but hugely influential, and, and died relatively, like, relatively recently. Hmm. Hugely important comedian who, for some reason, didn't have the same reputation as Bruce, who died young. And Bruce was described as angry evangelist, almost street preacher, and social critic who didn't have to be funny all the time. And he he brought a different kind of comedy. And Barry Levinson, the director, said of Bruce, I remember thinking he's talking just like we would be sitting around and bullshitting at the diner. Everything we had in our minds would come out of his mouth. Mm. This is really important. Obviously, the various case of him being banned and prosecuted for obscenity and, and so on. And he is the sort of model of like your, your Bill Hicks. Right. And George yeah. Carlin and Doug Stanhope, like comedians to this day. Dave Chappelle, you know, Lenny Bruce is like the pioneer there. The sort of Elvis Presley. Meanwhile, I think the Beatles of satire, mm. it'd be on the fringe. Right. Which launches in 1960. These four insanely talented. It's ridiculous. Cambridge undergraduates. I mean, it is genuinely, like, it's Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Alan Bennett, and Jonathan Miller. <laughs> it's just, even saying that you're just like, well, that's just preposterous. And you're like, what? They were all in the same group, whatever. This is, this is, these are some of the responses to Beyond the Fringe. Mm. I mean, this is like an 80 minute satire show. Jonathan Miller saying, it sounds arrogant to say it, but I think we knew that it was funnier than anything we had ever seen. <laughs> uh, Michael Billington, <laughs> who went on to become the Guardian's theatre critic, said it was a shock, a slap in the face to all of us because we'd seen nothing like this before. We hadn't seen prime ministers actually lampooned by name. Yeah, this is a reference to Peter Cook's Macmillan. Ma uh, and Macmillan, yeah. some, there's, a the there's an argument that the, 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 the satire boom, you know, owes itself to Harold Macmillan, <laughs> who rather wonderfully, bless him, it came along to the BBC when... when um, the, that was the week that was, which was a satirical show that, that came out of Beyond the Fringe, different people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it came out, came out of that kind of moment. And he said to the director general of the BBC, I hear that you have some sort of Saturnalia out here on Saturdays. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good on him. I mean, also, that's exactly par for the way in which he's satirised, which is just this sort of, you know, aged, aloof. You know, a preposterous, slightly preposterous figure. Well, it's interesting, like, how political it was considered... To be. So K Kenneth Tynan is one of the, I mean, one of the great mm -hmm. critics. And he was very good on this. And he celebrated, uh, he celebrated Lenny Bruce. Right, it was a nightclub Cassandra, bringing news of impending chaos, a tightrope walker between morality and nihilism. Oh, very good. With Bruce, a smile is not an end in itself. It is invariably a means. Mm. <laughs> 
Um, and he really liked Beyond the Fringe, but he was a little bit sort of confused about where it's coming from. He said Beyond the Fringe is anti-reactionary without being progressive. It goes less far than one could have hoped, but immeasurably farther than one had any right to expect. And then later, what comes out of Beyond the Fringe is that Peter Cook, still insanely young, mm. Peter Usnov described him as the funniest man in the world. Jonathan Miller said that one session with Cook, you had enough material for two weeks because he would just come in like firing off jokes. Mm -hmm. At the age of 23, he sets up the Establishment Club. It's a home for satire. Lenny Bruce plays there. Also, some of their contemporaries set up Private Eye, which Cook then buys. Because mm -hmm. even at this age, he's got like enough money um, <laughs> to buy it, buy it in 1962. And Kenneth Tynan sent a note, I think, to it was either to the Establishment Club or Private Eye, complaining, when are you going to get a point of view? Huh. And he thought that it huh. lacked this consistent ideology. And indeed, some of the readers did as well, because some people thought it was Marxist, some people thought it was fascist. And to this day, Private Eye's letters page has people going, you, you remain whiny Remainers, or oh, you kind of reactionary Brexiters. Because I mean, I think this brings us this idea of like, and, and one of the things that most annoys me about discussion of comedy, and maybe one of the, the spurs that most of these episodes are inspired by, by kind of things that keep popping up on social media that I think are false. And one is that, it, it, you know, it always has to punch up. Not just good satire, but good comedy has to punch up, which many people would disagree with. Well, Dryden for a start. <laughs> but you've got, well, you know, Swift, Evelyn War. You know, should the power, should power dynamics be taken into account? Now, Peter Cook actually said, because the Conservatives are in power, it will, of course, be easier to attack what is there. Attacking the Labour Party at the moment is a bit like robbing a blind man. Oh, God. That's you know, horrible just going, memories of the present. And so basically, you have to satirise those in... It, some people say you have to satirise those in power, but actually, at that time, Private Eye was mocking Labour. And by the way, he did Private do it. was mocking other people. Well, he did it too. I mean, he mocked the CND, you know, the sort of the, the anti-nuclear campaigners when he was at the Establishment Club. Yeah. And got a handbag thrown at his his face, which wasn't exactly grievous bodily harm. But nevertheless, you know, we would constantly find that people come there thinking, you're supposed to be taking the piss out of Macmillan. You know, don't start right. turning on protesters. So even then there was this sense of like, that's not your job. You shouldn't be doing that. I mean, I was thinking more recently of... of, of of, of how the sort of power dynamic works. I went to see his comedian, Patsy Harrison, an Asian-American trans woman. Mm -hmm. um, and she opens with a satire on trigger warnings. And she's very earnest about it and goes, so I'm going to do a little presentation and just warn you about some of the stuff that's going mm -hmm. on. And it's so funny the way it just flips from kind of like earnestness to taking the piss, the way that they become more and more absurd. Mm -hmm. And I did think like, if this was a middle-aged white guy making fun of trigger warnings, right. it would have a certain energy to it. Yes, yes. Whereas this, it meant that this basically very kind of like groovy progressive crowd <laughs> could enjoy laughing at some of the ridiculousness of trigger warnings. Mm. You know, and, and which can be ridiculous in the same way that when they, uh, you know, like Netflix or whatever will flash up warnings about what the show mm -hmm. contains. And when it's a long list of things, it can just be really, really, really funny. Mm -hmm. Anything. Can I just quote here a list from, from when uh, that was the week that was started? They still were using the BBC guides for writers and producers from 1948. Oh, wow. This was, this is the rules, right? And it becomes hilarious. It's not meant to be funny, but it mm. is. There is an absolute ban on the following. Jokes about lavatories, effeminacy <laughs> in men, immorality of any kind. Su suggestive references to honeymoon couples, chambermaids, fig leaves, prostitution, 
ladies' underwear, e.g. winter draws on. <laughs> Animal habits, e.g. rabbits. And commercial travellers. <laughs> What's the, co- the commercial travellers bit? really came out of nowhere there, didn't it? It just basically shows what kind of innuendo was in 1948. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. door-to-door salesmen, apparently, that meant sex. On politics, it said, we reserve the right for variety programmes in moderation to take a crack at the government of the day and the opposition, as long as they do it sensibly, without undue acidity, and above all, funnily. Oh, Jesus Christ. I'm so glad I was born when I was born. Yeah, so obviously the undue acidity, they, they dropped that. Um, restriction. So I wonder whether we should try and talk about some of the other, like the the big, the big issues. One of it, I suppose, is does it change anything? And I found a great quote from my man Kurt Vonnegut mm. in Playboy: "Laughter is a response to frustration, just as tears are, and it solves nothing, just as tears solve nothing." See, that is exactly in line. A fucking Vonnegut. I mean, that's. but it's exactly in line with sort of where everyone seems to end up. It's fascinating to me. In the whole history of satire, everyone seems to end up in a dark place. Right? Like, I mean, Swift says, you know, Gulliver's Travels had no effect on, quote, reforming the Yahoo race. Yeah, no, I, f- I found this as well. From the mo- some of those famous satirists, so I asked Amanda Yanucci, like, what effect do you think the thick of it had had? And mm-hmm. He says it hasn't improved anything. I think you go mad if you thought I'm going to write something that's going to completely change people's views. With the thick of it, I didn't expect it to radically change anything. I just thought that when you watch the headlines and think, how did that happen? That's an interesting story. And he says he is interested in the dynamics of power. And that is funny without changing it. And somebody else who you would think might be more pro-satire is Roger Law, one of the creators of Spitting Image. And he said, I don't believe satire changes anything, though you think it will when you're young. But on Spitting Image in the Thatcher days, we sometimes had the feeling we were the only effective opposition. Bit harsh on, on Neil Kinnock there. But it's so interesting that so many people go, it doesn't, we don't expect it to change something, but it's really important to say it, or it's really important to, um, to have the release of laughter, or it's really important to kind of just have a, have a way of looking at how, um, at how power works. Let me add something in here about why this might be, okay? And it, it follows from sort of like quite current sort of theory by psychologists. So this is by Michael J. Apter, who is an incongruity theorist, so he believes in that idea of humor comes from incongruity. Um, and it's called reversal theory. And it's essentially that humor is a non-serious activity involving play. It harks back to its sort of evolutionary origins, right? So it produces a state of mind that he calls paratelic. So it's present, and non-goal-orientated, rather than future and goal-orientated. And so that that's part of, we sort of create, we get lost, it's, it's cognitive, you're using your head, it's not, right. as people would say, the absence of thought, but you're using your head to work out these weird sort of breaks in logic from the unexpected, and that that puts you in a different brain state to when you're thinking about how am I going to achieve things. He says, this is a quote from him, we seem to create a small and manageable private world, which we may of course share with others. And this world is one in which temporarily at least, nothing outside has any significance, and into which the outside world of real problems cannot properly impinge. If the real world does enter in some way, it is transformed and sterilized in the process so that it is no longer truly itself and can do no harm. That's part of this sort of 
which which maps onto that idea of that sort of conservative idea of the release, which is just that actually it's it's almost this kind of heroin, you know, for for injustice. It doesn't galvanize change. Yeah, there's one example. I mean, this, and I think this is probably not true, unfortunately. <laughs> According to Pliny, this is one example of a very effective satire. The sixth century BC Greek poet Hipponax wrote such obscene and abusive satires that some of his targets hang themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure if that's true. But I mean, that would be an example of perhaps satire succeeding too well. <laughs> but but one of the things I think that comes up is consistently in the history of this is the audience for satire. So Hogarth sold most of his drawings to exactly the people he was mocking. Mm-hmm. Jane Austen sure. Jane Austen novels were read by exactly the class. Yes, yes. He was mocking the establishment. People, performers at the establishment were constantly worried that people in the audience were coming along and that, you know, that they basically weren't feeling the satire. And, and Tom Lehrer, the sort of satirical songwriter, who's still alive, but basically retired in about 1960. Right. Uh, it's crazy. He once said, the audience usually has to be with you, I'm afraid. I always regard myself as not even preaching to the converted. I was titillating the converted. The audiences like to think that satire does some, is doing something, but in fact, it is mostly to leave themselves satisfied. Satisfied rather than angry, which is what they should be. This is so interesting, you see, because you see, in my life, the, the satire that I've seen of the areas in which I work is plays right into this. Like you think about Yes Minister. Okay. I mean, I do civil servants that prided themselves. I mean, Yes Minister was, was yeah. that area of the civil service was sort of coming to an end by the time it came out. You know, the idea that they were all powerful during the Thatcher or Blair government oh, yeah, is yeah, absurd, yeah. right? Yeah. They weren't. They were bossed around. But like they still prided themselves on adopting it. Think about the thick of it. No, shit. Think about the way that journalists act about the day-to-day. You know, I mean, we all got brought up on the day-to-day. We love it. The word news in many newsrooms I've had has got this kind of comedic sort of tone around it from the day-to-day. So you just say news, 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 news is happening, news, news, news. You know, this this sort of adoption of it. The thick. Every time you read an article where there's some spad, some special advisor for a minister... You can see it every time in a politics article. Would have sent his little WhatsApp of like he's as useless as a copper bottom twat in the bottom yeah, yeah, of the yeah. sea. You know that they've watched the thick of it. All of them have, and they are emulating the thick of it. I'm not saying that they would behave in any no, no. better or worse way, but they want to be that guy. So it's far from satire. It's sort of this thing that they emulate and try to to be themselves. Well, Julia Louis Dreyfus interviewed her about Veep. And, mm. um, and she basically echoes Swift. And uh, I said, well, what do, what do people in Washington think of this? I guess they all think we're making fun of the other side of the aisle. It's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, it's not us. Or the people think it is us, but they kind of absorb it. You know, it's really, really hard. I think Chris Morris talks about satire which placates the court. Mm. And he says, it's really about whether the people you're lancing can get off your spike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's really, oh, that's really hard. And this goes back all the way to all the people that we've been talking about. This sort of fear that the people you're mocking, largely, they, they're just, they're, they're enjoying it too much. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's actually really hard. You have to be extremely savage, I think, for people not to be able to get, to get off your spike. Yeah. And, of course, sometimes the way that comedy is satire is structured now and some like, have I got news for you? Is you come on, they're making fun of you, but also you got to be, you got to be a good sport. There's that roast vibe. Yeah, and so well, the politician we... can't really be skewered. I mean, why don't we, why don't we address that? The, the big fact that comes out of that, right? Which is, you know, where does Boris Johnson start? 
Boris Johnson starts on a bug on your sheet. Now, that's been very well litigated of the blah, 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 blah. But Boris Johnson is essentially a satiric product. Yeah. His entire communication strategy is satire and has been, right? It is, you know, I'm funny, I'm bumbling, I'm caught in the act, and blah, blah, blah. I mean, he seems to me, that there's a there's a, a Peter Cook quote. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I know the one you're going Yeah, you're going to, yes, I'm not surprised. Britain is in danger of sinking, giggling into the sea. Yeah. And now that, what the fuck is Boris Johnson if he's not that? And, and I do think he is a product of satire. And also, you can't really use satire against him, or at least people failed, to, comprehensively, I think, failed to do so, in much the same way as they did with, with Trump, really. And I think that yeah. that speaks to something quite, it's not even about, is it effective? It's also like, does it p- potentially have the ability to, to neutralize threat? Well, there's a good uh, history of the 60s satire boom called That Was Satire That Was by Humphrey Carpenter. And, oh. it, and it ends by quoting people like Michael Frayn and, and John Bird from that era, saying that, complaining that comedy had infected politics. And Barry Humphreys, who got his start in that period before Dame Edna Everidge. So there's an infuriating frivolity, cynicism, and finally a vacuousness. Everyone is a satirist. Mm-hmm. And when, when people become too sort of self-aware, because it's much harder, like you're talking about the ancient tradition of like, to Cleon, right? Probably not a funny guy. <laughs> Probably not like sitting there like Frank Sinatra listening to Henny Youngman go, uh, fucking Cleon. <laughs> uh, so it was very effective and very, very subversive. You know, the more kind of almost, you know, what is Boris Johnson without a sense of humor? Mm. He has a genuine sense of humor and wit and willingness to kind of roll with jokes about himself. Well, he is the really joke powerful. About yeah, and, and to play into joke. that, yeah. take and to, and to make himself this kind of laughable character. And that's really troubling because it becomes very hard to satirize him. People also said, it became such a cliche, like, how do you satirize Trump? You sure, know? sure. And yeah. Veep, Veep yeah. basically yeah. said, well, we're not trying. Yeah. We are satirizing the culture that enabled someone like Trump to emerge, which I think is very fair because it was like looking directly at the sun, like you, you, you can't do it. And I kind of ended up thinking about how actually the best satire isn't about politics. And a lot of the time you're seeing old clips of the thick of it, which ended some years ago, really a product of new labor and a little bit of the yeah. coalition yeah. years. You might get old quotes from Veep. You know, Mot the Week has just ended, but you've still got like, have I got news for you? Sort of the revived spitting image, Saturday Night Live. Like really hard to get any kind of super effective kind of political satire. I was thinking like, who do you want to satirize now? If you want to satirize power, it's Elon Musk, it's Jeff Bezos, it's Mike, Mark Zuckerberg. And I was thinking of characters in like um, Silicon Valley, Black Mirror, um, mm-hmm. Circle by Dave Eggers. And Amanda Yanucci said that he, the most interesting satire for him now was these sort of hybrids like Succession and White Lotus, both of which feature Oh, tech. yeah, he yeah, yeah. He yeah. says, shows the glide between drama and comedy seem to gel because we're in this world where we can't tell if something is important or trivial. Yeah, yeah. And that actually, you look at satires, satires on the ultra-rich, Succession, White Lotus, Triangle mm. Sadness, mm. which came out recently, like that seems to be the target because you're thinking, well, who has the power? That actually what the thick of it and the veep did in some ways was almost like the terminus of political satire because it was going, these people cannot do anything. Mm. They, we've got to the point where politics simply does not work. Who are the people that are making things happen who seem, uh, you know, who seem pompous and ridiculous and perhaps dangerous? It's like they're the tech guys. 
And that, to me, the direction of satire, satire follows the power. Mm. And the fact is, I think one of the, the most, the best signs that we could have that politics was becoming more healthy would be a really effective new political satire because it's like, oh, there's something worth satirizing here because it feels exhausted. It does feel exhausted. And weirdly doing this research made me feel a bit depressed about it all, mostly because you just see each satirist sort of just seems to, to, to lose faith. But like, I did think it has formed me as I am. I am the product of those comedies, of British satirists, whether they call themselves that or not, and their sense of kind of snarling sort of mockery of power feels to me like a really good education yes. for me as I was going on. And, and you cannot show the causal line to an election or a policy change or whatever, but just that sense of the forming of moral character by attacks on the hypocrisy or venality of those in power just seems to me to be just a healthy fig full stop, which is why presumably why dictators always end up banning it, which sort of does indicate there must be something about this thing that works. I mean, what bothers me now is not so much the, it's not so much the state of satire. What bothers me, I think, is perhaps almost like the legacy of, of Lenny Bruce and what has happened to stand up. Because there's this uh, great quote from Bill Hicks where he goes, to me, the comic is the guy who says, wait a minute, as the consensus forms, he's the antithesis of the mob mentality. And he's still, Hicks still thought himself in that kind of thing. He's the guy that sort of, you know, says the unsayable, but in a kind of, with a, in a righteous way. Anybody can say things that are unsayable, which are just simply, you know, I know like Nazi hate speech. <laughs> like that doesn't, that in itself <laughs> is not funny. And what I found maybe looking at some of the more contentious comedians of recent years is either they are, I think, abusing the license that they have as comedians, like, um, so you, you're Joe Rogan and you're Russell Brand, because they have a background as comedians. They can say all this stuff, like often conspiracy theories and disinformation, and then they just go, well, I'm just a comedian. Mm -hmm. I'm just a funny guy. And it's like, yeah. well, really, you're trying to be, you're, 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 you're trying to, you want people to take you seriously. You know, people, you're not meant to watch a Russell Brand video and laugh and go, what an idiot. Yes. <laughs> this is just yes. the Kremlin line. You know, that's not meant to be funny, but he's kind of <laughs> using that, that license. And I also feel like that what you want to feel is that there is some real thinking behind it. And so if you talk to a, a Amanda Yunichi or whatever, like he really understands this stuff. He doesn't have illusions about it. He understands what he's doing, why he's doing it, whether it works, on what level, what is the criteria for why it works, all of that. And what I see with comedians like uh, Ricky Gervais, Dave Chappelle, Jimmy Carr, whatever, they don't seem very clear on what they're doing hmm. with the offensive jokes. What are the jokes that they mean? What are the jokes that they don't mean? Like Dave Chappelle goes, comedians have a responsibility to speak recklessly. Sometimes the funniest thing to say is mean. Remember, I'm not saying it to be mean. I'm saying it because it's funny. Mm. And it's like, that's not really, that's not really an excuse, right? You can make fun of like a disabled person and you might find that funny, the person telling the joke the bully's humor and they're going yeah it's not because it's mean it's because it's funny and it's like well what's the difference to the mm -hmm. you know to the target and jerry sadowitz who had real controversy recently he got interviewed and and i thought that he was somebody who's going to have a real sense of what his comedic mission was over the last 30 40 years or whatever and he didn't at all like at least in this interview he goes from an artistic point of view i quite enjoy the fact there's a fine line with what i do fair enough 
that people can laugh at the irony and at face value. I really hate when people say, I get the irony, but the person sitting beside me was laughing at face value. Because remember, his, his stuff is like grotesquely misanthropic and, mm -hmm. and abusive. Because I just think if they want to laugh at face value, fine, go right ahead. Surely that's what art is. It's open to interpretation. And I was like, now that is outside satire. Because the whole point of satire, I think the something without yes. which satire yes. cannot exist, is you must understand your mission. Yes. What is your target? What are you trying to say? Like, it doesn't mean it has to be kind of like, can make it kind of like, you know, didactic. Every satirist, whether, whether they're left wing or right wing or whatever, or subtle or blunt or playful or abusive, kind of knows why they're doing it. And I just feel now they're in a space where, where a lot of the comedians around which controversy sort of swirls seem unaware of their inconsistencies mm -hmm. and unaware and unwillingness to draw a line and go, okay, this I mean, this I don't mean. Comedian stand-ups particularly, they love the laughter. And maybe why satirists have to think more clearly and be a bit more honest about what it is that they're doing is because they're not doing it in the room. They're not stand-ups. They don't have the instant approval of the audience. They're writing on the page. They're working it out there. And I feel that the laughter, we've done live shows, right? Mm. And if you get a laugh, it's wonderful. It's addictive. You feel like you get a rush and you just feel like this is fucking great. You understand why stand-ups do what they do. But I think that they can get to a space where the laugh justifies everything. And they cannot say, do you know what? I told this joke and it got a big laugh, but I think that it was, uh, I think that it was cruel or I think it was pointless. Once it's got the laugh, that seems to be a justification in itself. And in no serious discussion of, 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 of satire and of political comedy is a laugh an end in itself. I think you have to have some sense of a moral position, which you had with you had with Lenny Bruce or you had with George Collins, you had with all these people. And it might be a very dark and even contradictory position or worldview, but there was a worldview and that is what is interesting. And I think when you take away that worldview, it, it, it not only can it be kind of like a bit of a moral mess, but it is less satisfying as comedy because then it's just like whatever works. So do you know what I mean? I think we are in perhaps a space where people could do with not necessarily having to go and read all these books about satire that we've read, but to think a little bit harder about, okay, what is the purpose? What is the kind of laugh that I'm going for? What is, what is my worldview? What is the point of my comedy? Because otherwise I think it becomes, it comes, it becomes very empty and can just be plain nasty. And that sort of jester's license where you go, I am poking fun of the follies of society and mm. whatever. It doesn't really stick. Thank you very much for joining us. If you've got anything to say to us and any mistakes that you think we made or just want to generally tell us how wonderful we are, you can email us at originstory@podmasters.co.uk. And I'd just like to say thank you very much to Jason Hazley, friend of the show and our mutual friend of us both, uh, for talking through some of these issues with us. We will be back next week with the gorgeous, hilarious topic of fascism, which it turns out, after lots of communication, neither Dorian nor I are in favour of. If you want to hear that episode early then you can support us on Patreon, uh, without which we would not be able to do all the research required for this podcast. And we're very grateful for the supporters we've received so far. Cheers, guys. We'll see you next week. 
Season 2 of Origin Story was written and presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky, with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and Origin Story is a Podmasters production.